For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome back to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with my co-host and producer, Mike Madison. People often send me articles that relate to the work that we do at End It For Good um, through Facebook Messenger or through email. If you come across good articles, send them to me, Christina at enditforgood.com. Um, it's how I, I get some of the content for our Facebook page. It's just interesting stories that people find from around the country. Um, and one of those articles that somebody sent to me, I loved and shared it on my Facebook page. And it has now been one of the most shared posts that I have made this year. It really resonated with people. Um, and as soon as I read it, I thought, I want to get the author on our podcast. So I contacted the media outlet that published the story, um, who connected me with Catherine Cooper, um, the woman who wrote this piece, who is our guest today. So Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Christina. I'm pleased to be here. Catherine is an award-winning columnist and photographer with deep roots in Laguna Beach, California. She loves everything about the ocean um, and expresses her concerns for the health of the sea through her art. An avid surfer, paddler, and swimmer, she spends as much of her time in the water as possible. She's a board member of Eco Alianza de Loreto in support of their environmental conservation and educational initiative. She spends a lot of time south of our border as well as north of it. Um, she's an advisor to the Ocean Foundation in Washington, D.C., and a regular contributor to their communications efforts. And she's also a single mom to true, two grown men and a shaggy rescue dog named Buster. Um, so Catherine has had a very successful career, but this article that she wrote actually wasn't about any of her career. It was about her son and their family and her son Austin's struggles with addiction and incarceration, ensuing mental illness, and the day that she saw her son through the eyes of the broader community. How do other people see her son? So Catherine, tell us about the day that you saw your son that led you to write this piece. Um. I was driving down one of our local roads. It's in Laguna Canyon. It's a very wooded area. And I saw a young man walking by the side of the road. He had on a heavy backpack, and he was wearing board shorts and had on combat boots, which struck me as unusual in the first place. Um, he was headed, I assume, toward a sleeping area that Laguna set up for homeless people. And immediately my thought went, oh, I wonder if this man is shaved. Oh, he's another one of them. He's one of the people from the beach. What can we do to get all these homeless people out of our town? And as I continued to watch him, he was kind of dancing along the road. He had earphones on. I realized I recognized him, and it wasn't a stranger. It actually was my son. Hmm. And it was the first time I ever saw him, I mean, really saw him as one of them, one of the homeless people that live on the streets in the town. And um, it struck me how I had a set of, uh, of prejudices against homeless people that I still was caring, even though my son, because of, of, of jail and, and felony convictions, had become one of them. And it struck me that I needed to possibly rethink homelessness, and I certainly needed to open my heart wider. So I think there's still a lot of people who are grasping at the hope that maybe because their child is smart or they're active, that addiction could never pull them into homelessness. What was your experience with your son and his journey there? Well, Austin growing up was one of the more meticulous children you might you might encounter. His 
his pencils were lined up, his cards were lined up. He was an A student. Um, he took honors classes. He was a basketball player star. He was a star baseball player. He was recruited and had three full scholarships at uh, three different colleges. Um, he was being scouted by the majors. So he was, uh, he was as busy as a young person could be during his, his adolescent and formative years. So it certainly wasn't a case of him lying on the couch playing video games that led him in the direction he ended up. So not everybody gets caught by the criminal justice system for their drug use, but Austin did. Um, And there are people who will say, I hear this regularly, you know, a a little jolt of jail is just what people need to stop their use. So tell me first about your first experience um, when Austin was arrested of visiting him. Um, Let's see. The first time I visited Austin in jail was on Mother's Day. Um, He'd been arrested for... Uh, sales of cocaine and had been given a year sentence and I had always told my children growing up that if you get arrested for dealing or doing drugs you're on your own I had a real one of those lines in the sand that I said I'd never cross and so suddenly now my son is actually in jail for that offense and um, it's Mother's Day I haven't seen him in three months and all my guilt buttons go off and so I go to the jail, I go through the whole signing in place, I have my own um, personal issues with jail. I mean, my mind says it's a dirty place, my mind says it's where bad people go, Um, and yet there's my son. Hmm. There's my brilliant, athletic, handsome son, and he's with everyone else who has committed some sort of crime. So what was that like for, uh, what is the experience of jail like for people who are in it? I think if, if you haven't had experience with it, a lot of people, I, I think, misunderstand it. They anticipate it as, you know, this is a well-monitored environment. This is, you know, there's rules about how we have to treat people. This is America. Um, what was Austin's experience like, or, or maybe just the broader experience of uh, the, the many people that you know now who have spent time in jail? Well, jails where people go and meet people who have committed other crimes. And so it's not really a place where you um, get rehabilitation. It's where a place where you get more education on how to um, be less of a citizen, I think. Uh, there's very little... There, I, I can't speak too broadly about rehabilitation in all jails or all prisons because I'm not an expert on that. But I find that in Austin's journey... Uh, nobody to get appropriate health care, and then eventually mental health care. Um, but nor was he given, you know, mostly he sat in a cell and read books. You know, I sent him lots and lots of books. Um, there are fights all the time. Uh, the guards could really care less. Um, so particularly very... in the prisons. The prisons have become private prisons. There's absolutely no reason to rehabilitate anyone. You just want to keep them there because that's your income source. So I think the whole incarceration is a little more, a little less beneficial than we would like to believe to the people who are incarcerated um, than the actual reality. Hmm. Yeah, I heard somebody say um, recently that uh, jail is the community college of crime, learning more and different ways of committing other crimes or the crimes you were already committing in more creative ways. 
and prison is the university of crime. You know, we send you there and it just is kind of this breeding ground for, you know, we're, when you come out, you're going to have a criminal record. You're not going to be able to get a, a you know, a law abiding job. Nobody's going to want to hire you. So you're going to have to be able to provide yourself for yourself, you know, through these other means. So, uh, of course, we don't want to believe that. We want people to say, no, 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 no. You just need to go get a job. Um, but we'll get to that in a little bit, what Austin's experience was like uh, finding a job after being incarcerated. But what effect did just his incarceration have on him? Oh, well, he did. He, what, did it ha- what did it have? In, well, I don't think I can, can speak to that without speaking to the job part, because mm. he came out of jail with a felony conviction for selling mm. cocaine. And so when he'd apply for a job and he applied to everyone, um, McDonald's, uh, Jack in the Box, the grocery store, no one would hire him because he was a felon. So what choice did he have but to go back to the only way he knows to make money, which is to sell drugs, which it's, it's like a vicious circle. If you can't get a regular job and what, you, what, what got you the felon in the first place is the skill set that you have, then you go back to doing what you know because you, you need shelter. You need to have food. You need their basic things that we create by employment that without that ability, you can't provide that for yourself or anyone else. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think a lot of people who, even if they support tough drug sentences, um, pretty much everybody says, well, you know, yes, we need people to be contributing members of society, you know, once they become, once they come back from being incarcerated. Um, so all of us realize it doesn't do any good to keep people out of the workforce. But just like with your experience with Austin and with many people's experience, you know, in Mississippi, one in 13 adults has a felony on their record. It's an unbelievable number of people who we are um, making kind of permanently unemployable for many businesses who just um, they may even be a, a great employee, but the businesses just don't want, you know, their customers to to catch wind that they're, you know, hiring somebody who has a felony because we have such a stigmatized view of anybody that has had an um, interaction with the criminal justice system. So I loved one of your quotes in your article. Um, you said, you know, how do you climb out of the gutter when the slopes crumble with each attempted handhold? Is that what it felt like for you and Austin trying to rebuild after his experience? Oh, completely. I mean, it's completely. I mean, the recidivism rate is something that maybe of one in 13 in Mississippi, but the recidivism rate is what's the most disturbing. Is it because Austin was on parole? Okay, first he can't get a job. Then he finally got a job. You know, we worked it out with a, with a company, and he was driving their truck and doing some construction work. And one day he got stopped for a speeding ticket. And because he was on parole, it was 15 miles over the speed limit, they put him back in jail. They impounded his business's truck. He had no drugs. He wasn't selling drugs. He was driving because of work, but he's now he's back in jail. So it, it's almost like a turnkey where even when you're trying to do it right, if you do some little tiny misstep that you and I would get a hand slap or a warning, um, with his felony conviction, it became a major event. And people can stay on parole. I mean, it's common for people coming out to be on parole or probation for like three or five years. So you have this like you, you your life has to be perfect for three to five years. You know, even for for most of us, if we have no interaction with the criminal justice system, chances are we have sped or we have, you know, parked in the wrong place or, you know, uh, something like that. And there are so many uh, rules and regulations and different things people on probation and parole have to go through. And any one of those that you fail to do, uh, you know, e- even if it's. Um, 
I was watching a documentary recently, and there was a man who um, was 10 minutes late for his uh, meeting with his parole officer because uh, he doesn't have a driver's license because, of, you know, his criminal record. And so he was taking the bus and the bus was, you know, had gotten stuck in some traffic thing or something like that. And so he even though he was. Uh, trying to to get there was 10 minutes late and ended up back in prison for actually multiple years because of how that city uh, and and that criminal justice system handled um, parole violations. You know, we're going to be harsh on you. We want you to know, you know, this is um, something you got to, you know, you got to show up. Um, And we just make it nearly impossible for anyone, even, even people who are trying their hardest to actually get out of this kind of sucking um, you know, the criminal justice system kind of has this, it's like a whirlpool you're trying to climb out of. It's not just this calm lake that you can just kind of swim to the edge and, um, and get out. Um, so what, I know you, in your article, you have talked about, um, just the way that, uh, Austin spent time in solitary confinement. There's, I've seen a lot of people talking about, you know, we know enough about human psychology to know like solitary confinement is just a disaster for, you know, the human brain and for um, the ability to to thrive. Um, what was Austin's experience like with that? Well, Austin went into prison one person and he came out someone else. And that's as clear as I can say it. Um, he went in, <clears throat> excuse me, he went, he, he upgraded, I call it an upgrade from jail to prison for a third arrest for, this was possession of cocaine with intent to sell. It wasn't his. It's a complicated story, but he took the fall for um, a woman that he thought he loved, and he went to prison. And in prison, the first thing that happened was it was a, it was a black and brown prison, and he's very white, and his choice, they gave him a choice, fight or, you know, or be beaten up, and he chose to fight. And because he was in a fight, they threw him into solitary confinement. Um, that was a year. He spent almost a year in solitary confinement. Wow. And his letters originally were pretty much as normal, you know, letters from Austin. You know, he tried to be upbeat. He talked about maybe getting out. He talked about his one hour a week outside in a pen with some sunshine. And then suddenly his letters started being very, very strange. And uh, I took a trip up to Wasco where he was in prison and uh, found out, you know, more details about Ag seg, which is what they call administrative segregation. And when they brought him to see me, I, I, I was stunned at the person that they brought because it looked somewhat like my son, but his eyes, there was something in his eyes that was different. He, he couldn't quite focus on me. He, um, he sort of talked in circles. And, and I realized at that moment that they were torturing him as best I could tell. I mean, he had no contact with, with people. He had no outside life. He was locked in a little box. Uh, 24-7, and there was nothing I could do to help him, that I couldn't go in, not even, certainly not as his mother, but as a citizen and say, you know, this person needs help. You need to get him some, some mental help. You need, he needs something. But there was no way. I was behind a prison wall, um, which is, it's, I don't know how to explain it, except it's like it's, it's a wall. It's like this huge impenetra- impenetrable um, place where you can't get to the other side. You're, as a citizen, you're not, you have no sway. Um, I know there's some, some counselors and there's some spokespeople, but overall, um, what the prison guards want and what the prison warden wants, that's what happens. He's in charge of that world. And so Austin um, came out with a diagnosis of schizophrenia, 
that'll never change. Uh, drugs don't work for him anymore. They did for a while. And so basically selling drugs led to my son being mentally ill um, forever. That's my story and his. And that's a hard story. And I think uh, a lot of us want stories that have happy endings. And this one uh, doesn't, at least um, not yet. Your son is still struggling, like you said, with that mental illness and with homelessness um, because of that. But it's important to tell your story and Austin's story because they are the stories of millions of other Americans. And it's really important that we differentiate that where did these harms come from? Austin's drug use did not cause his mental illness or his homelessness uh, or his interactions with the criminal justice system or criminalization of his use and of his selling those substances did. Um and that's it. That's that's hard for us to, to deal with because we don't want to address that. We want to say people made a choice and they're, you know, I can kind of shut my brain off and say, well, you know, it's their own fault. Um, but we have to address why did this happen? Why did it get to this point? Because we incorrectly addressed a complex health crisis. Uh, we did not allow these substances to be um, in any sort of regulated form. So there are lots of people who are selling them, uh, using them, and then selling them to get money to use them. And um, that that whole system is created by the way that we have criminalized um, uh, drug use and the drug market. So, Catherine, if you could change one thing about our drug laws that you think could have the biggest impact um, positively for the most people, what would that be? Oh, well, I, cer- I certainly... I certainly would vote for decriminalization because the number of people in the local jails, for sure, I'm going to say it's more like 85 to 90 percent, are there for some related drug uh, drug violation. Um, if I couldn't decriminalize it right away, I would certainly see if I could find a different type of category. Um, Austin being charged with a felony, that's exactly the same as murder or rape or burglary or, or arson or sex crimes against a child under 14. And somehow... That never made sense to me. Uh, selling drugs was a was a uh, an agreement between two willing participants. There wasn't a victim involved, and yet the person who sold it ends up being the victim for the sales. So, at least a reclassification if you can't decriminalize it right away. But for sure, we don't need people in prison for selling drugs. It, it makes no sense. It's not it's it's not a crime of violence. It makes no sense. Yeah, I think that is what other states are pursuing now. Also, even conservative states um, are looking at defelonizing drug possession so that, you know, it's just treated as a misdemeanor. I've also heard there's um, movements in other places to uh, switch drug possession from a criminal offense to a civil offense so that we just, you know, you get a a ticket for it or something like that. Um, And so I think there's, like you said, there's a lot of things that we can do now, even without taking huge steps, um, but there are things that we can do now where we, we can curb that additional harm that's happening to people because of how harshly we're treating um, drug use and possession. Thank you so much, uh, Catherine Cooper, for joining us today and for sharing your life and your story. Thank you for having me, Christina. I appreciate it. You can read Catherine's article um, that she wrote. It's called When the Homeless Man is Your Son. It is posted on the End It For Good Facebook page today, the day this um, episode airs. And some of you listening have a story like Catherine's. Your family has been affected by incarceration. And I hope that hearing Catherine speak and reading uh, what she wrote encourages you to explore ways that maybe you could help people connect to our incarceration crisis through the power of storytelling. Catherine did not write an article that is full of statistics, although she knows those statistics and she could have. She wrote an article that is her story. 
And it's her invitation for us to enter into the lived experiences of families that are being torn apart by the criminal justice system's approach to drugs. So statistics are important, but really nobody cares about statistics until until they actually have stories that connect them to those numbers. Uh, And I realize not every family can or wants to share their story, but if you can, it is really powerful. And if you're not sure where to start, email me at Christina at enditforgood.com. I'd love to talk to you. I can connect you with uh, Catherine. She can tell you how she went about writing hers. Um, And if Catherine's story has piqued your interest in the challenges that many people who are facing homelessness uh, are facing, you can check out episode nine of the End It For Good podcast, where we interview Liz Evans, who spent decades providing dignity and a place to live for the most marginal people, marginalized people in our um, society. Um, We believe every life is valuable. Nobody gets thrown away. um, And we need to pursue policies and strategies that help uphold the dignity and value of every life. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.